Play the music. <laughs> awesome. Welcome to Herp Talk Radio. I'm your host, Matthew, and with me, as always, we have the lovely Peggy Deppers. <laughs> so, Peggy, what's new in the past two weeks? It's been two weeks again. Wow. So, what's new in two weeks? Oh, I'm still complaining about the weather. Today was in the 60s, nights in the 40s, so the turtles are coming in so you know to avoid pneumonia. And uh, But I, I give them treats every time I put them in a tub or bucket to carry them out. So they think like, oh, hey, we're coming to this lady every time she shows up. <laughs> so the, they don't seem too upset about the, you know, uh, outside during the day and inside during the night. And, uh, but uh, I haven't been even putting them out for the last three days because it's been in the 50s, close, you know, um, low 40s at night. And tomorrow it's going to be in the 70s. <laughs> so it's uh, going to be a turtleicious day tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and a few coming and uh, my incubator news is uh, um, you know a lot of people say oh if you find eggs in in the water you know discard them well the three eggs I found in the water are producing anim- uh, embryos the two that she dug a proper nest I don't know which you know we were gone for six hours to the national parks and uh, and we um, when I came back I found the three eggs in the water and, and, and then an obvious signs of a nest found two eggs buried properly. Those two eggs in the proper nest did not develop embryos. One started leaking, going bad. The other one is a runt egg and not forming an embryo. And the three I found in the water are producing embryos just fine. <laughs> so when in that six hours, I still don't know how long those three eggs were in the water, but they're the viable ones. And so, you know, my word to all the reptilian um aquatic turtle people out there do not discard your eggs found in water give them a chance incubate them and see what happens and how about you matthew what's going on in your reptilian world um nothing in the reptile world for me but it is hot <laughs> wait a minute you showed alligators i see alligators every day <laughs> well, i make sure i see alligators every day that's intentional <laughs> I go out of my way. For us out there um, who don't get to see alligators, except at Reptile Gardens, you know, it, right. it, I thought it was fun. It was like three feet from your feet. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there was no barrier. Like, I haven't posted that video, but it was up on the bank. We were down at the beach, and it was, it was low tide, but there was an alligator hanging up on the sandbar right along the bank of the ocean, and uh, yeah. I could have jumped on it. I didn't, but I could have. I could have. <laughs> Sorry, I, I've had this realization, and Peggy, we'll get Jake on the show here soon whenever he gets on busy with his job on Wednesdays. Um, but, like, Jake and I were road cruising, and this is Jacob Bratz for anyone who doesn't know. Sorry. Um, we were road cruising, and he we pull up to, like, two cottonmouths. I've never seen a cottonmouth except for in a box. I've seen one in a box once. Um, (laughs) And like, I'm all excited. He's all excited. And then I got my flashlight and we pull up into this swampy area and I like, I shine like three gators with my flashlight. And I'm like, oh yeah. And Jake, Jake was, Jake was mad that I did not care as much about the cottonmouth as I did eye shining like four gators. So no, I hate to say this, but I might actually be more of a gator person than a snake person. Oh. 
Yes, it totally jumped at me, Charles. That cottonmouth jumped out at me, chased me down the road. No, no, not at all, pigs. (laughs) Well, hey, I don't know cottonmouths, so I I hear stories and, yeah. (laughs) They do, like, a little lunge thing when they, like, go to leave. Like, Uh, ha! Uh, It's very interesting, but it's not chasing you. Oh, well, well, our rattlers do that, so... (laughs) So, should we bring on our guest here now? Yeah, let's do that. Chris. (laughs) We've got Chris on with Copperhead Reptilia. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Um, US Arc, Steve on his t shirt. Chris Chris reached out to us and kind of wanted to do like a. Well, I don't know. We'll get into that. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, I don't I don't know too much about you, Chris. I know you're out there herping all the time. You're always posting photos of something. Um, so can you give us a little background on you and who you are? Yeah, what totally. you do? Yeah, so um yeah, so uh, my name's Chris Chaffin. Um I'm located up in Michigan. Can you still hear me okay? Yes. Okay, sorry. It's muffled for me, but um yeah, so um, I've been keeping between 15 or 16 years now. Um, really lucky I had supportive. Did it, I cut out? Uh, no, it's, uh, it is staticky for some reason. Okay. Um, is it this guy? Does it sound any better? I do have a different pair of head, like earbuds I can try and see if that yeah, works. Yeah, see if that works because that's, okay. that's, that's kind of really um, shocking us a little bit here. Gotcha. Sorry. I had some tech issues last time. I... Oh, God, did we ever. <laughs> yeah, so uh, give me one yeah, second. Yeah, it was bad. Okay. Well, while you do that, um, so uh, Matthew, you're, um, uh, what, what else is going on in your private reptilian life? Um, lots of herping, actually. <laughs> uh, I found my first ever box turtle, Peggy. <gasps> Oh, wow. Did you take pictures? Yeah, it's actually the cover of this, like the thumbnail that I posted. It's on there. I haven't shared it anywhere else but there yet. Um, Super cool. Super bright, too. Um, Eastern boxer? I would guess so. I haven't looked it up yet, but yeah, I would assume that that's that's about the only option. We're not in Florida. Well, you never know if there's been a release, and you, you never know what you're going to find. But That's true. Yeah. Um, lots of turtles laying eggs on the side of the road after it rained, mm-hmm. which is common, I guess, around here. And then also, Phil, Justin, Jake, everyone I've talked to down here tells me gators don't cross the road. Oh, you won't find a gator on a road. My freaking butt, I won't find a gator on a road. If you're freaking looking for a gator on a road, you'll eventually find one. And I have a picture of a gator on road to prove the gators are on roads. (laughs) And not just dead. (laughs) Well, I mean, I would think that they would be sunning and basking on warm roads just almost like any reptile would be. Right. They're super scared of humans and super scared of any activity, though, so they bolt. Anyway, Chris, how how's the audio feeling? All right. Can you hear me any better now? Yeah, it, it seems to be that when you speak, there is static. That's that's a good description of it. 
Do you have echo cancellation on? Mm -mm, I shouldn't. Um, hold on, let me check. Would that be under audio? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is it any better now? Yes. yes. Okay, yeah. Echo cancellation was on. Okay. That happens. Got that. Sorry about that. Excellent. No. So, okay. let's, yeah, let's resume about you a little. Yeah, yeah. so, um, I definitely had that typical, like, reptile kid upbringing, like, huge into dinosaurs, had, like, the stereotypical garter snake, hermit crabs, that type of deal. Um, when I was 10, my parents let me get a ball python, who at the time was 14, and, um, he actually turned 30 in April. I still have him. Wow. So, um... So yeah, I've just kind of gradually grown from there. Um, I did about seven and a half years working um, at an animal shelter. So I did a lot of work when we would get exotics in. Um, I occasionally assisted with wildlife, mostly doing hands-on work with cats and dogs. Um, left that, uh, was a manager at a small local pet shop for about a year. Um, and then I am currently working for a local university doing animal husbandry for their research program. Oh, okay. So, um, so and, and, and what, what animal husbandry in particular? Um, mostly at this point, just, um, rodents. I am trying to move up to a couple other species. Um, I'd like to move with, or work with some non-human primates in the future would be really interesting. Um, but yeah, so at this point, just mostly rodents, but kind of, you know, old hat compared to reptile stuff, you know, it's nothing too crazy. So. But yeah, so and then, you... oh, go for it. Oh, I was going to say, and then I just keep, as you've both seen the small zoo I have here. So, <laughs> so I was thinking that you were possibly a store owner because of the zoo I was seeing on Instagram. <laughs> I wish that would, that would be honestly like a, a perfect end goal at some point in my life. Um, I will say animal retail, very much not for me after um, working in that kind of a capacity for a while. Definitely just not something I think I could see myself doing. Um, but yeah, those are everything that you see on my social media is actually an animal in my care currently for um, for the most part. Okay. So have you counted them? How many are there exactly? You always ask that hard question. <laughs> the running joke is there's more than 50, less than 200. Um, okay, fair enough. It's always kind of in a like minor state of flux because I'm still kind of in that phase of like really trying to nail down what I'm most passionate about. And I want to say I'm like 95% of the way there. But, you know, it's always that whole, like, figuring out, okay, this species really, the husbandry does not equate to what I do with the rest of my species, and they would be best suited with a different keeper. Things like that, you know, and just kind of refining on what animals are best set up for success in my care. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, that's a great principle, and um, that's why I stay with turtles, mostly aquatic. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just have two rescue box turtles, and... and uh, that was a learning, uh, you know, a, okay. a lot of reading and then a, and a lot of learning. You know, we had to keep them so sterile right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and my allergist says, no reptile soil in your house. <laughs> oh, geez. So, yeah. yeah. Like, okay, there's, you know, I'm, I'm going to, what do you, do you use coconut fiber? Because it's supposed to be fungus, uh, helps prevent 
fungus. Um, you know, she's my allergist is really afraid of mold. So I'm hmm. trying to find a substrate that box turtles would love to dig in that can be kept moist without developing molds and other fungus. So I actually, um, I did keep um, a three-toed box turtle for a little bit. Um, I don't have them anymore, very sadly. Michigan is a little, the DNR, even though they know that our local box turtle is just the eastern they really don't draw a distinction at the species or the subspecies level so i did end up rehoming him just to stay within my local laws and make sure that everything was kosher um but when i kept him um i did a mixture of topsoil the um zilla sells it it's called like jungle mix it's like a peat moss with fur very finely ground I did that topsoil and cypress, and then I would mix in leaf litter and sphagnum moss, and that actually did really well. Unless it got like soaked with no ability to dry, it actually uh, stayed pretty pretty good for the entire time I was keeping that animal. Yeah, I had to get rid of all my house plants because of just the potting soil. And... Gotcha. Like the flower pot fungus, the yellow stuff. Yeah, well, and the white stuff, <laughs> and gotcha. the extremities, and the yeah. So um. So right now, um, they're on uh, a reptile carpet, the soft one, okay. um, and that I, I, I cut several segments, and I hose them down, and I, I change them, and I hang it outside in the sun, and then uh, they really seem to like that, um, and they mm -hmm. go into their cave. They don't, um, I put them out, when I put them outdoors, they can dig in the dirt all they want, and they don't tend to really do that. They go into their hide, or, you know, in their, their water, you know, one's blind and the other one is crippled, so they, they don't travel far. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get that. You know, the, the, the cage is only a 30-inch um, by 48-inch dog kennel that has boards on the bottom. And, you know, they, they out in the daytime and in the nighttime because our raccoons are so bad here. And um, our neighbors are still trying to figure out how to keep the raccoons out of their chickens even with roofed topped, really, you'd think secure mm -hmm. roof uh, top um, wiring and, and such, but they, they rip the staples out. Um, big bad raccoons. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, even like in my area, we have, you know, um, the rescue I work with does a lot with, um, they have like some leopard and red foot tortoises, and occasionally they have a few sulcatas. Sorry. I've been, <laughs> I've been trying to like calmly push this cat away for the last um, about five minutes so uh, sorry about that um no personal you space your, here. Uh, your echo um thing again because you're starting to static when you talk again maybe the cat's okay. on something <laughs> okay can you hear me better now yep. okay cool yeah that, here we go those cats and keyboards are always a, a deal <laughs> i'm telling you oh sorry he just like jumped up here and i was like thanks bud um <laughs> but yeah, even around here, even with like larger species, we always have to be super careful. Like I have, um, I have Russian tortoises and I want to put them outside and just let them live their best life outside. But I live right by the woods and I am, we have foxes, we have coyotes, we have raccoons. I am too terrified to put them outside. Yeah, yeah that's the same here. And we get mm -hmm. cougars and, and, bob, oh, yeah. and bobcats and, and boy, they can really rip into habitats and and so yeah um yeah <laughs> but so, so what, I, I know go ahead so what are you uh 
you said you've got like a whole zoo, but you're kind of focusing down. Are you focusing down like desert or tropical? Like, how are you focusing? And then like, what's, I mean, I know you have a zoo, but what's your, what's, what are you actually like looking forward to most keeping? Um, so the big thing that I'm really, really excited about, um, I do have a bonded pair of, uh, prehensile tailed skinks. So the, okay. or like the monkey tailed skinks. Um, so I got a pair of those last season and they actually, they bonded pretty immediately and they do form social groups and they do care for their young. So, um, they're only about a year and a half to two years old right now. I got them both pretty young, um, so raising those up and really hoping I can produce some babies, um, because as far as I have heard, um, the Solomon Islands will not be exporting them again. Um, what I heard was too many of them were exported and it was above the quota that they had set during the last export period. And they have now said, we're not doing that again because that has happened every time they've opened export. I don't know how true that is, but I've heard that from multiple exporters. Um, so I'm really hoping to get some captive bred animals established. Um, a few zoological institutions near me work with them. So I would like to, you know, donate some animals back to zoological or educational institutions, kind of keep a captive line going. Um, so that's one of the big things. Um, I do actually, my Russian tortoises do uh, produce for me yearly generally. So I've actually got two eggs that I incubated out accidentally last year. I didn't know they were in the enclosure. So I've got two little babies, and then I have two eggs that are probably about a month, month and a half away from hatching. Um, and then other than those, the only real projects I have currently are um, Slowinski rat snakes, are a pretty new project for me. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. So <laughs> I don't really do a ton of breeding. Um, it's actually not really my thing. Um, I... I'm weird about selling animals. I have that whole, like, when I go to a reptile show and someone comes up and I just get a bad vibe, it, it's not really a done thing in the community to tell them, I don't like you, I don't want you having one of my animals, but I produce on such a small scale that I don't really want to just give an animal to whoever. Like, it's no problem to me if they sit here for six months before they go somewhere, you know? Yeah, that's right. why I was in breeding horses. I said, I just don't want to produce foals because, man, they, they practically have to pass a, a classified check. <laughs> yep. You know, because, yeah. you know, I don't want the animal abused or neglected, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I had a whole I had the whole period where I was, you know, chasing the morph thing I wanted. I had and I still have a lot of corn snakes. I have a lot of ball pythons. And that's kind of something where I'm like kind of stepping a little bit more away from keeping the animals I've had a really long time, but the ones I got is, you know, a breeding project. I'm either just kind of retiring them and keeping them just at the pet level or um, trying to move them on to another pet home, but just to, you know, not have 12 ball pythons in my care. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Because the world does not need more of those at this point. <laughs> no, that's not real. for a second. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, um, I'm, you know, my little project is just to prove out a gene, you know, and yep. I'm only breeding one female and then I'll breed to get back to a target male and that's it. And I'm only sharing that with another breeder and, mm -hmm. and that's, that's all I care to do. Um, yeah. You know, and I've got all these rescue babies that um, need this, you know, they're big enough to go to where we had found their mama and, that, that's still my goal. And I started to go fund me to help with the pet bills because game fish won't let you 
release an animal that you've had in rescue without a health check. So okay. it's, uh, and you know, and I don't blame them, you know, because a lot of people don't, you know, they, they keep them with tropical species, you know, mm -hmm. dump fish in their tanks for those turtles to eat. And I don't feed any live foods, um, mm -hmm. you know, other than, you know, for the rescues, the, the, the worms and the crickets so that they get used to eating the wild and stuff. But yeah. no, you know, no exotic species, no, no raw meats, you know, all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I even cook the fish, you know, so they don't get parasites. But I was actually just thinking that same thing. I was like, what do you do for the, the fish? You know, <laughs> I thought yeah. the same thing. I was like, those are those parasites in there are hard to kill. Yeah. Yeah. I cook a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, I don't have to pressure cook them, you know, other than in a tight lid, you know, and then, you know, cook them for a good half hour at um, low boiling. Okay. And, and that, um, you know, that, and yeah, it, it, it really does well. Um, we, I worked in a variety mm -hmm. of different bio labs and, 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 you know, took, you know, what does it kill to kill this parasite? What is it, you know? <laughs> oh, and, yeah. And wildlife biologists have to take a lot of parasitology and, and microbiology mm -hmm. and epidemiology because we're the, you know, we're called to the scenes of, my livestock are dying along with all the birds in the pond. Come and help me. So we yeah. have to be prepared of you know, what will we find? <laughs> gotcha. Oh, yeah. So that was good training uh, applied to my little personal life here. So um, now I'm looking forward to this conversation because we wanted to get into what is wrong with the hobby and how can we um, improve within the hobby and how can we become better seen by DNRs, game fishing parks, you know, wildlife fishing, you know, um, wildlife uh, service, you know, you know, anything like that. Yeah. And uh, I go, oh, good, controversy. <laughs> I was going to say, when I when I was first talking to you, Matthew, I was, I was kind of a little worried because I've, when I kind of started talking to you about the things before and you said, oh, yeah, let's get into that. You know, Peggy will love the, the controversial <laughs> subjects. I was like, oh. We're gonna stir the pot tonight. <laughs> That's okay. Sometimes the pot needs to be stirred, and as long as we can keep it civil, uh, the language nice. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. That's yeah. all I really care about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a problem. Honestly, there. honestly, overall, there is such of a thing as a too small box. But overall, I think that. Like, there's just a wide range of parameters, and as long as you're keeping within that, you you should be okay. Yep. And it's a wide range. Everyone can do something completely differently, but as long as you're in this range of parameters, yep. you'll be okay. <laughs> um, enclosure size always matters, and the more you can provide, the better. Yeah. But, yeah. That's yeah. what I've got on your enclosure question because I know, like, you said there's you want to cover like there's no there's a big difference between just rack breeding and zoo like setups, and I think in the middle there is where we do get lost a little. Yeah, and that's exactly where I was coming at it, and you know I've I've brought this up to other people before, and yeah. did you lose me again? Yeah, it's staticky again. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Just let people okay. enjoy every word that you say. I don't know why it just keeps 
do it. I don't know why either. I'm not touching anything either. Is it better again? Oh, yeah. It's, yep. it's, 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 I just keep turning it on and back off, and that's what I'm doing. And so. I had that problem with my mic last week, or two weeks ago, I guess we were. So. It's a curse. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was kind of where I'm coming at from this, because, you know, I, I come from the background of, you know, when I came into herpetoculture, you know, you it was the you bought the 10 the 20 the 40 gallon glass tank you bought the heat lamp but at the time you know um what's the best i can say um sorry i'm reading the comments here as they're popping up um but basically like i feel like in the early 2000s when i was you know younger and was getting into my first reptiles you had this whole you know, no one was really keeping in racks unless they were breeding. And now as we've gone on through time, we've kind of industrialized everything almost to a fault where we're so divided into the two camps of I'm keeping my snakes in a shoebox. And then you have the other camp of, well, I'm keeping a corn snake in an eight by four by four enclosure for as just spitting out numbers, you know? Right. And I think that we're becoming very polarized as a community on shoebox versus zoo enclosure, but we're denying the fact that both for the advanced crowd, if you hate racks so much, we need to stop hating on the people that are still trying to improve, but are in that middle ground. And I think that's something that we don't talk about. And I'm seeing a lot of people in the hobby that are relatively new, like that have come in since COVID that are extremely disheartened because they put all this time and effort into getting their first animal or they're setting up that first enclosure and it may not be a four by two by two, but it's also a one-year-old ball Python. You know, it's not even an adult yet. And they're, they're afraid to post their setups because they're so afraid of being just absolutely reamed by some of the people in the advanced crowd, which I'm, I like to think I'm part of that crowd. You know, I've got multiple large PVC, you know, thermostat regulated enclosures. I, I 100% buy into that kind of keeping, but I think there's, a huge issue with just kind of ignoring the fact that, like you said, Matthew, there is that entire area in the middle that we entirely just do not acknowledge. Yeah. And, and I see that in the aquatic turtle realm too. It's like, what do you, what do you only have, you know, why do you only have a 40 gallon aquarium for that turtle? It won't get mm -hmm. bigger. And I'm like, um, <laughs> you know, I, I've kept, you know, like three turtles in the 40 gallon aquarium. One gets three inches, one gets seven inches, one gets, you know, um, you know, somewhere in between and they're fed the same foods. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, they, they go outside into the same tank, but one just their growth rates are individually genetically different. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and then you've, you've seen a lot of, and I don't recommend anybody do this, but you see these poor turtles kept in a bucket. They're taken out to fed. They're taken out to, well, at least are aquatic turtles, taken out for a, a, a walk in the yard, you know, and then put back in the bucket. And those things get, they outgrow the bucket, you know. So yeah. I keep telling people, and as a biologist, I know it's not the space. It's the cleanliness of water that doesn't retard the growth because, you know, too much of the nitrates, too much you know, foul water, you know, can cause biochemical um retardation i'll call it um but you know uh it, it's the amount of food and sunlight um primarily um that and the quality of the food um mm. that uh, and their genetics 
that determine, you know, their growth rate. And yeah. like right now I've got a yearling that's as big as my four-year-old clown, you know, and, and she, you know, she's going to, you know, be double, if not triple that size in another year, the way this one is growing. And so, mm -hmm. and they're, they're being fed, you know, the same food in the same size tank. And so, you know, it, it's, 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 it's busting the myths. You know, these yeah. you know people like me. I, I live, you know, Joel and I live in a 572 square foot long cabin. Mm -hmm. I've got tanks on every surface of, <laughs> of, you know, and it's like, okay, I, I've got to change out this wooden uh, shelving unit into those metal racks so I can keep more rescues, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing, you know. But you know, I don't have a basement where I can keep 400 gallon tubs, and for my little operation i'm you know i, I um you know I, I don't think i have an operation i have pets and mm -hmm. i'm breeding two of them um possibly three if the clown um western painted turtle gets to a breedable size which the way she is looking like a dwarf may never happen but it's um you know so i i have to you know almost oh darn Oh, here we go. Yeah, almost on a weekly basis, I have to tell people that I'm not trying to be you. Mm -hmm. um, I've, you know, I've my mac my my largest two tanks are 75 gallons. You know, yeah. and I've got um, three five inch turtles in there, and they're quite happy. You know, and mm -hmm. um, you know they and they're healthy and they're growing and they're shedding right. And, you know, in the summer they go out into much larger, you know, tanks, but it's, it's trying to, like you said, it, the, the people that are discouraged by the professionals telling and, and by professionals, I don't know if you want to say professional breeders um, that are feeling that everybody has to do things their way. And I just, as a biologist, I keep them clean, feed them the closest species appropriate diet, making sure they've got, you know, room for exercise and, you know, and, and you're doing fine. I, I get contacts. Well, I, I have a three inch turtle and I have him in a 40 gallon. I go, he's happy as long mm -hmm. as the water is clean and filtered, the lighting is proper. You're doing things great, you know? Yep. So. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said that there's this whole ideology now with the, I don't want to say like the advanced crowd and just sound like I'm calling anyone out, but we're just going to say the advanced crowd that space is the biggest thing you need. And I can't tell you how many times I see people locally to me online posting, you know, their animal and they say, oh, this is my bearded dragon in a four by two by two setup. But you look and I'm, I'm not sure if you guys saw... Um, the day that I contacted you guys about the show, I actually put up something where I had someone once tell me, you should aspire for my level of keeping because my bearded dragon is in a four by two. And I said, okay, I want, I want to see the setup. And it was literally a dollhouse couch in the middle of a four by two, a bin of dirt and a cork log. And that was it. Hmm. This dragon could not get more than about six to eight inches off the ground. And I'll, I'll be the first to own up. I have a bearded dragon that I never planned on owning. He came to me in a 40-gallon. He was found in a dumpster in it. Um, but what I did was I stacked bricks through there. So he's got a burrow at one end. He's got a rock pile. He's got branches throughout it. He's got a climbing space at the other end. 
and he's got all the proper light, he's got a proper diet, and he's got substrate he can dig, he can do all his natural behaviors. But I think we need to get away from the idea that, yes, there is absolutely a minimum for every animal and every, you know, like I would say a 40 gallon is, in my opinion, I would like him in a four by two. I would, and that's a plan. But I think at the same time, we need to also put in diet, enrichment, exercise, kind of like you were saying, there are other factors to animal care just beyond the size of the enclosure. But so many people are taking enclosure size as the only determining factor for the quality of care an animal is receiving. And my vet constantly says that the thing that he sees in turtle keeping is obesity, you know, mm -hmm. and, it, and, you know, as a biologist who worked for a nutritional biochemist for 14 years, and I'm still on as, um, working for the company as a consultant and sometimes special, um, you know, client consultation. Uh, uh, it, it's what they call the food that they rely on. It's mostly um, conventionally grown grains, which are full of pesticides. Pesticides, herbicides are hormone disruptors. And then they, they, they feed this till their animals are obese. And then they wonder why their fecundity, the, the amount of her legs go down. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so then I, I tell them that, um, you know, they need to, um, you know, I, so I, I, I really made it a thing to find the most species appropriate commercial pellet. Well, I mm -hmm. found that for aquatic turtles in the discus field, you know, they, they raise these mm -hmm. big discus fish for brilliant color, good bone, good size, and it had the same nutritional requirements as the aquatic turtle would without um, being, you know, like, I, I won't, I'll just, you know, too much grain, you know, I won't, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and very little fish or very, you know, but this, this has crustacea, it has, you know, fish, it has a, a little bit of wheat for binding, but it has, you know, the, the xanthans and, and the aquatic plants and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, once I mm -hmm. put put my fish on this one or my turtles on this, which I found it, they started to shed their scoots. Even my, um, I would call them the, the health compromised ones. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I, it just sold me that what's being sold as turtle food, um, is, you know, is, is really bad for the turtles individually, whether it's just a pet. Well, and especially for breeders because they're feeding mm -hmm. them a bunch of phytoestrogens, which is going to really affect the male fertility. So, um, but boy, you try to, you know, tell that to the, the turtle world and they're just like, you know, what do you know? You haven't bred turtles. You know? <laughs> and I said, uh, I'm a, a biologist who worked with a biochem, a nutritional biochemist. And I know what, the, what hormone disruptors, um, are pervading the human species. I mean, there's, there's too much glyphosate showing up in baby food jars you know, for yeah. humans. You know? And, uh, yeah. And so it, it, that's the one thing that, um, you know, nutrition is the, you know, utmost, you know, for, for those, you know, as humans as well as our animals. Mm -hmm. So, so on, on the, uh, husbandry side of things, mm -hmm. like we were talking, um, I think we need to stop overall. There needs to be a, just the common understanding that as long as you're providing, I get height for some mm -hmm. species. 
but yes. if you're providing a four by two box mm-hmm. for an animal that's going to be on the ground or under the ground the whole time and it's short that's that doesn't matter as long as you're putting more stuff in there to yeah. fill the space and it's just not an empty canvas um yeah. i think this is where the rack for i there's a whole nother side of this of like the animal can see out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think that's good. Some animals, I don't think that works with, um, yeah. but I think overall it's more about the enrichment and the stuff you're putting in and not mm-hmm. as much about what kind of box you're keeping the animal in. And I think we're getting very, well, you have to keep it in a box that's, that's this. Well, mm-hmm like a bull snake, for example, is going to live on the ground and underground its whole entire life. And it, yep. it might climb a tree through like, there's videos of them climbing trees, but like mm-hmm. for the most part, that thing's going to be in a burrow. It's yep. so why do I need to provide, like I get the extra height for some examples, but like a bull snake, you mm-hmm. don't really need two feet of height. It's not going to use it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like I have a bull snake as well. I have about a 12 year old, about five, five and a half foot bull. And he is, I want to say he's in a four by two and he spends 90% of his time in a cork log. (laughs) The only time I see him out is when he's hungry. And, you know, I think, um, there's a lot to be said as well. I'm not sure if either of you ever listened to, I believe it was reptiles and research, um, or project herpeticulture, one or the, one of the two. And they were talking and they were saying about how, it's funny, we classify a semi-arboreal setup as 18 to 24 inches. But if you're looking at a semi-arboreal species, there, a full arboreal species is going to be just all the way up that tree, and we will consider a full arboreal setup to be four feet tall. It's, I hate to say it, we keep saying, well, this is what they need. They need four feet of height. That's arboreal. That's not arboreal. That's a shrub. <laughs> and I think we're at, we're doing it to make ourselves feel better. And I think that kind of going back, there is just this modicum of we need to understand what that species does and how much they're going to utilize what we give them. Like I have a Calabar python. Not sure if you're familiar with the species. Kind of like a rubber boa, but armored and from Africa. Um, And I've actually had conversations with people before entirely out of the snake community telling me I'm abusing my Calabar python for keeping her in a basically a bin of dirt and leaf litter that's what they live in in the wild. They don't want to climb. They don't want to climb. They want to hide. Right. And I think there's just this whole, there's this issue with people. What's the word I'm looking for? Just, they want the, oh, I'm trying to, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. I got on a tangent for a second there. Yeah, but, good. Yeah, the, 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 the snake wanted to, uh, wasn't arboreal but you were providing Mm -hmm. it more with its natural habitat being a ground dwell. Yeah, and I think there's this whole thing where people want to say, you know, a snake is a snake is a snake, but I'm going to keep my Calabar python entirely different from my ball python, entirely different from my Japanese rat snake. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think we're so used to just seeing the mainstay species in the hobby that as soon as we see a deviation from that mainstay species, people just fly off the handle because they, they don't understand what they're looking at half the time as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I think a lot of this, I don't know. For me, I think the tipping point in like that, a snake is a snake is a snake is a snake, is like Mm -hmm. back 10 years ago when Terry was on. And Terry keeps in the zoo set up at Reptile Gardens. So he Mm -hmm. just keeps it 80 degrees, which is pretty much fine for every snake Mm -hmm. for the most part, Um, minus a few. Uh, But I feel like that helped a snake is a snake is a snake. We can just Mm -hmm. keep them at 80 degrees all the time and they're all the same, but, Mm -hmm. but they're not. So, and I know he wasn't pointing on that, but I feel like that just gave that a little more ammo. And I'll be the first to say, like, I have, um, I have one room that I keep a lot of, am I losing you again? A stack. Yeah, you're freezing up a little and a lot of static. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> well, that sounded clear. <laughs> okay, there we go. Yeah. Um, but like, I have a, I have a lizard room and I have a, a snake room. And the snake room from the, just the, I want to say about 10 to 12 enclosures in there that I do have overhead basking spots on, the ambient of that room never goes below 78 degrees even at night. So, I mean, I can't even keep my Asiatic species in that room. They have to be in an entirely separate area. But then I have things like corn snakes, rat snakes, king snakes that are just entirely living at ambient in there because they... If I put a basking spot on them, they're going to fry. So, like, I do get it to an extent and, like, using ambient heating and things like that. Especially when you're having a huge collection like a zoo in that sense. Oh. That is a whole zoo. And at that point, you do have to simplify the process. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I feel like there's just not a lot of understanding for the fact that everyone's collection is different. Like I'm in, I'm in Michigan. I'm about, um, I'm about an hour away from Detroit. So, you know, the way I keep my animals is going to be totally different from the way someone in South Dakota does to Texas, to California. And it, there's just going to be variation within the room and within the animals I keep as well. Right. Yeah. And every animal is just its own creature in and of itself. So mm-hmm. one might do something that, I don't know, like the Calabar burrowing pythons. Uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Wyman, he's got he's got his in an eight foot by two foot setup with like mm-hmm. a little log thing. And he has a picture of his like perched up like a like a green tree python, like waiting to pounce on a pounce on a rat walking by. So yep. But that was once when it was hungry, not every day, you know. Yeah. I will actually say I worked with a group of calabars for a while. Um, it's actually a species I'm very passionate about. Um, I had about nine of them at one point. Um, and I, I imported them as a group, and they, they were absolute hell to get established. And I lost all but three. And then the... I had two really, really old, mature females, and one of those old, mature females would do what you're saying. She was the only one out of the entire group that was ever out actively perched on anything. And so she was this one where I gave her logs and stuff because she would use it, but the juveniles I had spent the majority of their time entirely under the substrate, basically, as did the males. They were a very interesting species. (laughs) Sorry, I wanted to lend credence to what you're saying because I have seen them do that. 
but this was a very old, about three, three and a half foot female that was scarred to all hell and unfortunately passed away after about a year and a half. So, no cut. But, yeah. And yeah. I don't know. Okay. Go for it, thanks. Oh, I mean, uh, a lot of people ask me why I keep aquatic turtles because there's so much work. And I said, well, I'm an Aquarius. I mean, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. Aquariuses or I like putting the aquariums together. And I just thought, you know, as a kid, that turtles were more interested, interested, interesting than fish. And um, you know, and and they required a little, you know, you know, more sophisticated lighting and you know, and much more filtering, but. Their activity is is so personable compared to a fish, and mm-hmm. and so I, I have more contacts and networking with um, what's called Black Hills Aquarium Society rather than Rapid City Reptile People or South Dakota Reptiles. Um, and so, because most of the reptile network here in South Dakota is mostly lizards and snakes, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe a few terrestrial turtles. Very, very few aquatic turtle keepers. I feel um, like turtles are going to be coming up, though. I, I don't know. Everyone loves turtles, and I think we're in a shift in some aspects. I think we're going to see a. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I, I was done. Oh, oh I think we're going to oh. see more of a push for like I'm seeing a lot of people pushing for like the mud and the musk turtles because they do keep that smaller size, and I'm seeing a lot of a shift away from like the traditional like the slider family of turtles and especially like soft shell snapping turtles i don't see a lot of that but i'm really seeing some resurgence with like reeves turtles and like the smaller like asiatic species almost yeah and and what Mm -hmm. i found out in in becoming a turtle rescuer you know and and all the the eggs that we pick that are brought to us or picked up off the road from a roadkill turtle um you know, some of them, I think, were meant, had they been laid in a, a nest in the wild, I don't think um, some of the individuals would have even made it out of the nest. They come out weak, mm-hmm. they come out stunted, they come out um, miniature, dwarfs, whatever. You know, these pe- people in the breeding, like, there's no such thing as a turtle dwarf. Um, yeah, there is, because I've got three of them, you know, and... Mm-hmm you know, three from last year's wild where the others just grow, you know, and, and you want to grow them up really fast before you let them out because then they can avoid more of the cranes and the, and the other predators. Um, but yeah. they're, uh, where, where most of them that are, are you know, between three and four inches, this little one is only an inch and a half. And I have, I feed her separately. I, you know, and, and at this point now, She'll, she'll only get fat, even on lean stuff. I mean, she'll, she'll just, she seems to, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I've tried everything. So it's like, you know, so it's like this tiny little miniature. And so one of the persons that I know in, in South Dakota Game Fishing Park, she goes, well, um, so will, will she fit in a 20 long? I said, at this rate, she will live in a 20 long for the rest of her life. <laughs> and, you know, so she's going to take one of the, the runs, you know, from her office. And, uh, you know, and it's just, you know, and I've got a four-year-old Midland painted that came to me from a breeder. I'd never seen it from that small before. And he too, while his tank mate, mate is two inches bigger than him, um, who I 
purposefully stunted. In, our, in other words, just feeding him twice a week rather than every day. I tried feeding mm -hmm. him every day, and he just quit growing at three inches. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. you know, and so there there are painted turtles that will not outgrow a Reeves turtle. Or even though, you know, uh, even when trying to push like my clown, I've been feeding her every day. And then I had like, oh, I got to back up. I'm making her fat. Her, she, her shell just won't grow normally. Um, mm -hmm. You know, even feeding. And so it's, uh, you know, so, so I have these conversations with people online that there is no such thing as a dwarf turtle. And I'm like, you know, when you grow from the same clutch in the same incubator in the same tank in the same foods and some grow normally and just a few out of that same clutch, same, gen, you know, same genetic package, usually, I mean, it could be the same mother. There could be some different sperm fathers in that same clutch, but um, there are definitely dwarfs or runts, you know, um, that to me, you know, they, they needed special care. Um mm -hmm. To survive, and I, I and like I said, you know, they they probably would have just stayed in the nest and uh, or or died, and and their clutch mates eaten them before they left. You know, you know, mm -hmm. especially if they're a terrestrial species, and they can eat without having have water there. But uh, yeah, so that that's a one of the, the things that the big discussion of there there is no runs and there is runs dialogue <laughs> yeah and one thing that i really i had never thought about until i want to say a, a couple months ago um i forget if it, it was either dr loafman or morelia python radio one or the other they were talking about like morphs and different things and how no matter how you stack it morphs a lot of the time are potentially a broken gene. And even if outwardly that snake, that clown ball python just has a funky pattern, we don't know if that clown gene is linked to an enzyme that causes issues with the stomach, causes issues with, you know, later in life. We don't know how these genes, because everyone thinks that gene only affects the locus of pattern. It could affect the locus of digestion, of regulation of cancer genes. I mean, we've seen that with the lemon frost leopard gecko, they develop tumors, you know, and that is directly linked to that pattern gene. Yep. So, I mean, it's always a very interesting um, conversation, especially when we do get into that. And, you know, I see a lot of times, I'm starting to see less of it, but a lot of breeders are producing, you know, and say, oh, this animal was small. Oh, this animal didn't want to feed, but it's fine now is it fine now? Maybe it's eating now and maybe it finally is up to size eight months later, but should you be breeding that animal now? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the one thing that, um, I, I, instead of doing a, a breeding test on this clown that I have, because what I learned in genetics is, you know, when you have all this genetic crossover and, um, and, uh, especially in making, uh, the cells that go into each egg and sperm, Sometimes uh, a group of cells is passed on together, you know, it, you know, depending upon how that DNA unwraps and then wraps back together uh, again with, um, you know, the, 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 the female will wrap in with the male and blah, 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 blah. Um, so you end up with, I, I know when uh, horses of what's called the ovaro white patterning, mm -hmm. um, often, most oftentimes, uh, a lethal gene comes with that patterning 
um, every now and then you can get a pure white horse of that ovaro gene that does not die, but it's rare. And mm -hmm. so that lethal gene that just, like you said, doesn't produce um, proteins that um, allow that horse to survive, you know, um, and- uh, I thought that would be very, very similar to Jag and spider and all the lethal combinations of snake. It's basically the same thing because I believe the syndrome in horses is actually called lethal white syndrome. And when you breed a, um, I've brought this up to, I've made the comparison myself before as well, where, because when you do cross the jag to the jag or the spider to the spider, you do get a patternless white animal that dies in the egg or it dies. I believe a lot of them, I could be wrong. Someone can correct me. I believe they die of like lung issues and neuro very shortly after birth, if they even make it to hatch. Yeah. So yeah. it's very similar because I believe lethal white foals die within hours, correct? If they're not born dead. Yeah, within two or three, you know, an hours or three days max. I mean, they're okay. just, and some some breeders euthanize them as soon as they're born. One breeder said, you know, that this it just seemed to have a little more vigor, and I didn't, and it 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 um, it survived, and it showed no, it it acted like a normal foal. It never showed it, you know, it suckled it it ran and it's it's you know it it lived and so here was a, a lethal white little stallion uh, or excuse me uh, an overo pure white stallion that did not carry the lethal white gene and so i'm sure you know they were having a lot of people wanting to breed of that stallion but um, i was gonna say test that one see what genes are there yeah yeah and that's why i contacted the universities that have done the whole western painted turtle genome and they, you know, they, they won't, they, they said they're basically studying the Western painted turtle for how those cells withstand freezing that first six months of that turtle's, mm -hmm. of the turtle's life. You know, usually when the, once the turtle is beyond a, a year, year and a half, they do not withstand freezing. Um, they, um, mm -hmm. and so, uh, you know, but they want to understand what, what is that antifreeze in that, in the turtle's, um, first six to eight months of life. So they, they don't, they haven't really studied the color genes to find out, you know, is, you know, it, does my turtle have genes switched off or is there a new gene introduced or is there a gene missing? You know, I, I mm -hmm. don't know. So, gotcha. Yeah. But uh, anyway. Did we, did we cover all of enclosures that you wanted to? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's about it. I mean, there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's a whole debate you could have on that scenario yeah, could that could go on. Whole two-hour podcast on just that. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would love for there to be at some point a roundtable of like advanced keepers, normal pet keepers, and just like your stereotypical rat keepers. Put them all in a room and kind of like animals at home used to do. Have a roundtable and just have everyone talk it out about the pros and cons to everything because. I mean, it's a it's a good conversation to have, and I think more people need to have it. And more people need to just talk about that gray zone in the middle. But yeah, that's I think that's about all there is to it right now. You're coming, uh, a little, you're coming a little buzzy again, Chris. Should I have a should I, I do this signal of buzziness? <laughs> all right, yeah. let's um, see if that fixed it. So, <laughs> so. There were a couple other topics. I can't pull them up, otherwise you'll lose my camera. Um, gotcha. Yeah. I have. But, I, 
Yeah. Peggy's prepared. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, having been uh, a South Patagonian um, fish and carp person, uh, mostly in public relations um, at, mm -hmm. at one of our major state parks, you know, explaining to people um, wildlife management, how we go about setting limits, um, how species are deemed, you know, um, endangered at what point, threats at what point endangered, and, you know, that sort of thing. The one thing that um, oh, I'm still here. Sorry, I just have to get up for a minute. <laughs> okay. The one. The Sorry, one... I, my dog's whining at the door. I have to let him out. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, um, the one thing that um, I would like to see is that um, reptile breeders um, strive more. Like, you know, you obviously, be, in being a member of USR, and, uh, you know, um, I don't know if you, you also um, bought a membership with Turtle Survival Alliance, you know, and those such things that works heavily with um, wildlife management managers all over the world, plus mm -hmm. private reptile keepers that help them take on um, assurance colonies and confiscations and such. Um, and, and, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service asking for people to help them with um uh, confiscations. Uh, okay. I, I think, um, I mean, in the, in the last Turtle Survival Alliance Symposium that, you know, I, I um, watched the whole week, um, boy, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service couldn't say enough how they need more experienced um, reptile keepers to help them um, with these confiscations of, okay. of poachers and illegal trafficking that they you know, had intercepted. And um, I know some reptile keepers, you know, really don't want anything to do with rules and with uh, the wildlife agencies. And, and I think that if the two could work together better, um, mm -hmm. more assurance colonies can be set up and, yeah. um, and, and reptile keepers would have a benefit, like say, okay, here's this little breeder over here. I'm going to get certified by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to help them with these confiscations and rescues. And in doing so, I can set myself up as a 501c3. Mm -hmm. And now I've got this money coming in and um, it helps me not have to breed and sell so many animals that are critical to feeding my family. You know, yeah. I, I'm also doing um, my best in helping wild populations and such. And um, and that could mean just also what turtles you are allowed to purchase. Like for mm -hmm. me, um, if an animal is listed, like say the yellow blat, the yellow blotch map turtle, I think mm -hmm. if you want to own one because it is a listed species and so, um, you know, on the endangered species list then you need to qualify to own two and breed that and then mm -hmm. become a member of this, um, you know, um, stud book of assurance colonies to be able to have the privilege to um, have within your care that endangered species. And a lot of the, the breeders I talk to, no way, man, I don't want to live under any of those rules. <laughs> but it's, it's like the more we um, participate in um, in, in helping the endangered species, we won't be mm -hmm. seen as such a threat 
to the wildlife managers who see these species disappear and they'll just be outlawed from any private ownership. So, I mean, there's mm. an area that, you know, that, you know, we can work together that uh, helps the species, helps the private breeder, helps the, you know, the, the management of that species. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where Matt went. Maybe the rain's got a little heavy because I could hear it coming you know, on his car roof a little more. Oh, gotcha. Oh, I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's hiding from me because I'm I'm dictating what breeders should do. <laughs> oh, I I had something to do real quick. Um, yeah, no, the whole I don't know. There's there's also that disconnect from the zoo world too, which we've discussed at length on our podcast. Of the zoo world doesn't really want to have the private breeder there. Um, I don't know, as someone who wants to, like, I'm just going to take your average, someone who got in, you're just, just getting into the hobby. Well, Python crazy, let's say, because that's kind of the way it works. Um, yeah. it's hard to convince those people who want to go in at ball pythons and try to make. Matthew, you're, you're, you're muted. Hang on. Yeah. Oh. oh. There you there you are. Okay. Okay. Whoops. <laughs> Hi, everybody. It's just me. We'll have the Peggy show. Right now. <laughs> I was going to say, I think we lost Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he'll, he'll come back. He'll take <laughs> oh, there you he is. There he okay. is. There you are. There we go. Holy cow. So many issues. <laughs> so many. It's one of those days. Issues. So um, we we're talking about zoos, not wanting to deal with private breeders. Yeah. And then, and then, well, yeah, there's that whole disconnect where the zoos don't want to, you have to be an AZA member in order to like share those animals and such. So like your private keeper can't get in without a whole bunch of money. Um, But then, then there's, then there's the side that just puts a whole bunch of money in it, like the ball python people. And are they putting their money in the wrong spot or should they go for the greater good? And I think the greater good's the right answer, but I don't know if you can convince the masses who come into a pyramid scheme, like thought processing, um, because, Hey, take these two, you can make your money back. Like Mm -hmm. that's what it is. That's, I mean, that's what snake breeding is at the end of the day. I think of getting two snakes to make my money back on them or at least have them pay for themselves or something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just my thought process. I'm well, not in it. Gold pythons, um, most of them, are not on an endangered species list, you know, these morphs and such. Um, they're being bred separate of the wild species management. But I'm, I'm talking about possession of... Uh, unaltered native species that are listed as threatened or endangered. 
Um, and I think that the reptile community could gain a much better reputation by playing ball with, um, uh, you know, the, what they call the heritage species, the listed species. It's like if I, I'm a person who knows how to keep aquatic animals, um, how can I help the endangered and threatened aquatic species? What would it take for me to qualify to set up an assurance colony? Um, mm -hmm. How would that assurance colony be funded? Well, then, then you're talking 501c3. You can get corporate donations. You can, um, and not only for the care of those animals, but you are the caretaker. You may want to hire assistance. And so now you're on a, the payroll, but that is that is completely just. And um, in, in the care of those animals to take a payroll, as long as it's, you know, <laughs> you're not writing yourself the, all these checks and the animals aren't getting the care that that amount of money is due. But, and so this is what, um, you know, a lot of the rescues do it, by becoming a 501c3 and these local corporations go, well, where do we want to, you know, give out these monies because, you know, we can. And, mm -hmm. um, and so that way, um, a lot of these rescues and assurance colonies um, are employing um, what used to be struggling breeders. They can still breed their morphs on the side, and and but you know they're uh, and, and as long as they're being kept biologically safe, you know you know the and, and I'm sure you know breeders you know, work to do that you know in quarantine and all this sort of stuff. But I mean, there's just a way that people who love reptiles can make more money at it and help out um, these diminishing species and, and diminishing habitats. See, I actually have a little bit of uh, recent experience with this with my own state. So um, I'm, I'm a big rat snake person, you know, pantherophis, that whole family, corn snakes, black rats, that whole deal. And in Michigan, we have, basically like three species of snake you cannot keep as a pet it's the eastern massasauga uh the gray rat snake which as far as i'm aware we don't even have in the state but they think we do so they are illegal to have or keep in the state um and then black rats and so i think we're one of like the only states that have black rats as a threatened species because they just have such a small range natively in the state and I had reached out because they're so common in the pet sector and they're actually a favorite species of mine. And I said, you know, is it legal for me to get a captive bred one, keep the receipt of sale and keep that as a pet single specimen, non-breeding animal. And I got, I got reamed by the DNR about, yes, you can, but here's the reasons you can't. And it was basically a six paragraph, the reptile industry, is a bunch of poaching lunatics and Michigan is a funnel for poaching. And so the Michigan DNR is very, very strict about our native animals. There is, I, I'm pretty sure it's the same across a lot of states. You can't sell your local species. Um, it's actually illegal to breed a native species within the state for any reason. Um, so even if the animal originated in captivity, like I, I did buy a black rat snake, I got him as a he's like a het something out of texas but he's just a wild type black rat it's a single male and i have all his paperwork in a folder so i have it if i ever need it but that snake's illegal to breed and there's they even told went so far as to tell me like even if you were to collect a specimen or you know 
found one that was injured, you would not be permitted to keep it under any circumstances. And I think there's a lot of issues where I feel like a lot of states also don't want to work with the private sector as well, which, you know, I, I understand we at times have not made a good name for ourselves within, within the hobby, but, um, I'm with you a hundred percent. Like if they would let me have a pair of Eastern, am I flipping out again? <laughs> this dang thing. <laughs> it, it was, it was Sorry. mine last, last time. So, <laughs> okay. Sorry. But, um, yeah, no, like if they would let me own a pair of Eastern fox snakes and breed them and give all the babies back to the state to do what they want with, I would do it all day long. Same with, you know, Eastern box turtles. We have them in my area and I, I would love, I've got acreage here. I would love to set them up in my yard and breed them and give babies back. But I feel like a lot of the government agencies are as much as it might be something that would be super beneficial, they're not quite willing to do it, unfortunately. Well, I, I think the more people lobby them, like right now, I'm kind of a, a lobbyist right now with our snake game and fish. I know mm -hmm. as soon as, you know, um, you know, I found this roadkill on these eggs and I'm like, well, I don't even know if it's legal for me to have these eggs. I got it. I'm going to mm -hmm. contact the game fish and parks and, you know, and, and, you know, and people know me as the turtle lady through the aquarium society, you know, um, do I throw them out to the crows? Do I hatch them and release them? What do I do? So I explained, mm -hmm. you know, at that time I, I had only come across um, rescuing the eggs off the road, essentially, you know, ran over by humans. It was a human caused event. Should humans intervene and, and, lay, and, and hatch these eggs and return them to the wild. And so mm -hmm. um, they said, well, you know, it's not really a rescue. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll call it a, a scientific collector's permit and allow you to do this. You know, you used to work with game fish and parks and, you know, mm -hmm. you don't, you're not going to breed them and sell them. You, you want to release them. And I'm like, yeah, I want to release them. <laughs> I don't have room <laughs> for these things. And yeah. uh, so that's what, you know, that's what I did. You know, I contacted them immediately. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I have turned in, an, you know, an elk poacher who was caught doing it you know, the, the second or third time. Um, and, uh, you know, and yeah, that like what you said, Chris, that the, the reptile people have um, earned a very bad reputation. Not that everybody uh, has done it. I think the, uh, it's a minority within the reptile community of poaching um, from the wild to sell to Asia. And, you know, whether they're common and I mean, they're, they're even doing it to the bog turtle, which is extremely, extremely, um, endangered. And mm -hmm. so it's like, how do we as a reptile community, um, work with these agencies to let them know we're not all a bunch of poaching blankety blanks, you know, um, it's, it's not uh, the reptile community doing it. That's yeah. the thing. It's not, it's not people sitting here wanting to breed, a rare box turtle or something because they think it's cool. It's someone who sees a paycheck on mm -hmm. the side of the road as yeah. they're driving by. And that's, right. that's, that's where I think, I think that there is already a proven case study for, for it. And it's in the dart frogs. Cause if you look at the dart frogs, and you look at what there's two companies down there like mass producing, overbreeding them and mm -hmm. selling them for like two bucks a piece. 
just to saturate the market so they're not worth a few hundred bucks a piece mm -hmm. so people aren't taking them so i think there's better ways to go about captive management and i think when you restrict people keeping things you're restricting that the ability to replenish it at some point in time unless you've got your zoo working on it but probably not well, yeah, oh and and i would you know if um if i wanted to like they say we have the blandings turtle here but it hasn't been seen since the 1950s or early 60s um like what if i wanted to breed the blandings turtle and i would um have you know my breeding stock all, all microchipped and they could come on come in and inspect well there's no, you know, like, well, the only place, the only place I could get a Blanding's turtle, I think, is through the captive breeding, you know, place. Um, mm -hmm. That, I mean, that's the only way I would acquire it if I wanted to do this, or if it was legal, uh, if it was legal for me to do this. But um, so then, then when the the babies are born, um, you know, just like um, our, you know, Mike Aponovich in North Carolina, he's the only North Carolina licensed turtle breeder. Well, um, he keeps stud book records every. You know, every egg that's produced, every egg that goes foul, every egg that is hatched, he, you know, he photographs them. I mean, he's got really extensive records. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people are willing to do that, to be able to make their money doing what they love. And mm -hmm. and I think we, you know, there's some people in the reptile field that I don't want to live by any rules and laws. <laughs> you know, I go, mm -hmm. well, then move to Somalia. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, societies work. You know, humans can get along together more with the the more we, as a society, work together as a society, and that that you know involves taking care of our environment and the species therein. And so, I think, you know, like what you faced, Chris, with the Michigan um, state, you know, them thinking that any reptile fancier is a horrible lawbreaker. <laughs> I oh. mean. It's, uh huh <laughs> you know i mean you know the, the biologists that i grew up with in college you know and then in the field you know we you know i said well a lot of us were those those kid reptile keepers mm -hmm. and and then and some of them you know like the the biologist that i'm working with that i report to she she wants to have a turtle on her desk you know and you know we've got records of them i, I photographed them you know, we are animal keepers too. We love animal husbandry. We have pets, you know, and, um, you know, I, I have met some, uh, I don't know, I'll call, I'll call them soured rangers that they have been fired because of their mistreatment of the public. Um, mm -hmm. You know, slapping a person with a poaching, um, you know, thing when they, uh, you know, didn't didn't need to, you know, they was protecting himself from a deer that was killing his dog and, and, and speared him in the back kind of thing, you know, mm. um, and the, the public outcry said, fire that ranger. And they did, you know, that, that game officer was fired. Um, mm. And so it's, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's um, good and bad in both worlds as far as game, game rangers and reptile breeders, you know, uh, and I think if we all accept that, you know, it's like it's the people who want to do good 
who want to help the species, who also love breeding and, and creating this new life. Um, you know, a, a lot of that can be, you know, um, lobbying and, and working with their caiman fish to well, let's let's enhance the laws where, of course, you can't sell the native species, collect them and sell them and 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 uh, and, and bring the populations down. You know, uh, I think most everyone agrees with that. But mm -hmm. what happens when the native species moves into the pond that you have for your livestock and they breed and breed and breed? Well, here's a private owner private landowner breeding the native species, <laughs> you know, there's, mm -hmm. and, you know, they, and so in my discussions with the game and fish over these turtle laws, they go, Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, there, of course you can't trap and fish and catch and sell. Mm -hmm. um, a, a person can come from state and buy an out of state fishing license. And with that, they're allowed to possess four of our native species. Um, mm -hmm. I'm surprised at how many turtles they can catch, you know, when they come here for a weekend and take home with them. Um, you know, it's, uh, but they can't sell them, you know, uh, that's wildlife trafficking. Um, they mm -hmm. can either consume them, eat them, or just, you know, um, keep them. I mean, that it's just, uh, you know, that, um, and then they said, well, no turtle can be bought and sold in South Dakota. I go, you're talking about the native caught ones, right? They go, well, no, all turtles. I'm like, well, then why is PetSmart and Petco selling turtles? Then, well, they have a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service permit to sell turtles. I go, but do their customers have a permit to buy those turtles? And there I got it like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. All these, oh, yeah. You know, it's like we've got to, um, you know, uh, you know, find, you know, really pinpoint and, and refine these laws. Um, and it, mm -hmm. South Dakota is, um, I would say favorable to a, a business economy. Um, and there's a, a lot of families that can make extra cash, you know, selling their, you know, the, the lizards they breed, the snakes they breed that are not wild caught, you know, all this sort of thing. So it's, um, and the, the turtles they breed, I haven't come across any turtle breeder in the state of South Dakota. Um, but it's, um, uh, you know, you know, I'm just like, how can we all get along? It's going to require mm -hmm. lobbying and, uh, and a willingness to get along. Well, you know, I've often, oh, oh, go for sorry, it. Chris. No, oh, no, I was going to say, <laughs> okay. I was going to say, I've often thought because like in Michigan, we also have, you know, the Blandings turtle, we have spotted turtles. We have a lot, we have quite a few threatened species of reptile here i've often thought like if there were ones that were confiscated or someone did you know i'm not condoning it but let's say someone collected one via a permit somehow what like to what extent would it be such a bad thing for the population if they said you know do kind of what they've done with black pines either a you need to get an interstate species permit to produce or sell them but let's say Eastern Fox things, you get a permit for those microchip, the animals. So they're always traceable, which I mean, we've seen done with problem species in other States like retics and berms in Florida, microchip, the animals have a registry of who has them and have them yearly have to either get a license report in. 
I mean, I'm all for legal ethical keeping, and if there are ways to legally produce an endangered species, and even if you do say, you know, half of the babies go back to the state, or you have a warden that you check in with whenever you have a clutch on the ground, I mean, there's a lot of good ways to do it, and I, I'm seeing the phrase a lot more, not sure if you two keep up with, like, Tom Crutchfield, but he always says, com uh, conservation through commercialization, mm -hmm. yep. which is, like, basically produce so many that there's it's not worth it to take from the wild right. and i mean yeah. with some species that's not possible but like um if you look at just throwing it out there legodactylus williamsi which are the electric blue day geckos i want to say there's only like 300 of them left in the wild because they're from such a small part of tanzania but i've been to the josh's frogs gecko breeding facility and they have walls of them there no one imports them kind of like you were saying with dart frogs i mean I would love to see government agencies talk to breeders, talk to people who want to do something. Like, I, I don't have a degree. I would love to do something and produce animals that give back. That's why I do have a few weird species I want to work with and want to produce and donate back to zoological or educational programs because that's the farthest I can go because I don't have that zoology degree and the eight years of hands-on reptile experience to get into one of those programs yeah. you know so it would be really nice if we could see agencies be willing to maybe do some concessions do some registry programs accompany that with you know even if it's a license i'm sure there are tons of people in the state that would pay 50 100 dollars to have a license and would be willing to get animals microchipped to be able to work with a, a species that needs help yeah, I mean, I, I, I look at those um, yellow blotch and yellow ringed map turtles. I go, God, it would be fun to work with those little stegosauruses. But um, I don't feel right unless I can be permitted to do it and then breed them and give all the babies to reintroduce, you know, reintroduction. And then be inspected exactly. to make sure that, you know, that I am keeping them so that they can be, re, you know, re-released into the wild. Um, and then have them vet checked so that, you know, no species... You know, because, um, you know, I, I, I used to work, you know, handling dangerous bio samples. I know how to do isolation and quarantine mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, and, and, and uh, hazardous cleanup and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's like, um, you know, um, number one, it would take me to become a 501c3 to build a facility in which I can keep more animals because <laughs> yeah. can't can't do this in, in a, a small cabin. And, you know, I have a heated tack room up in my barn. You know that could be converted to a reptile room but it's like you know do i want to do this how much time can i do away from my artwork you know that sort of thing and so mm -hmm. right now you know in, in just being and i'm just gonna say it i'm overwhelmed with rescues right now i'm at my max limit um you know and i i've seen now two reptiles in the wild that were um, indicative of um, two uh, western painted turtles that looked like they had pneumonia because of the way they were swimming and because, I mean, um, so even the wild turtles are being affected by these major temperature swings. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I have every turtle in my possession in the house right now <laughs> um, because of, you know, the, you know, 40, 40 degrees, you know, at night. And, you know, um, I, that's just, that's just too low. And, mm. you know, so in anticipation of those you know, cold days coming, I got everybody in, even if they have to live in a bucket, you know, just to keep them from getting 
you know, and changing the water in that bucket every two hours. I mean, it's like, good Lord. <laughs> mm. So I've got, so, yeah. But, so, oh. but um, the one thing I was going to say, Chris, to what you said, I would love to do this. Um, contact the, um, go to the, um, the TSA on their web page. They have um, how to contact the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to see if you can, you know, if you live, especially in, in Michigan, you can live near um, um, major airports. Um, yeah, I was going to say Detroit is only about an hour drive from my house. And when I'm at work, it's only about half an hour. So, so that means the airport's like 15 minutes, man. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so trust me, they are looking for people with your experience. It doesn't matter whether you have, you know, a biology degree, a zoology degree, whatever. They're looking for people with reptile keeper experience to help them. And they and they said, please pass the word. Anybody that you know, you know, need to house so many of these confiscations that by the time we do find somebody to house them, they're sick. And we want to be able to take them that have just been collected. They've been intercepted. They're still healthy. Here, take care of them. Set yourself up as a, it will help, you know, your health, your state, your whatever, help you set yourself up as a 501c3, you know, get these donations coming in for you to keep helping us. Now you've got a salary doing what you love doing, you know, even if it's another salary on top of your normal job or, you know, whatever. See, I think my issue is I'm, I'm almost at a point with my collection because the, the biggest issue I have is, so like, even though I do keep tortoises, so like, I have a small group of Russians, I have a Redfoot, I have a Solcata, I have a Leopard. Um, I, I don't do aquatics. I tried for a while. I tried with um, Rhinoclemmies, which are the South American wood turtles. Um, I kept a... Oh, gosh. It's one of the Pulcherimas, but I forget which one it is. Um, but that was the furthest I could get into aquatics. Like, I would I would absolutely love to help with more along the lines of, like... I know there's a lot of trafficking with like Kinexis and which I have kept before, which were a miserable, miserable experience. I, they are the coolest. They are by far one of the coolest tortoises I have ever worked with. I will never have those little mushroom eating dump trucks in my house again. They were the smelliest animals I have ever worked with. They were so cool, but they were so smelly. Um, I would love to one day do Conixis again, um, the Pixis, like the, the spider tortoises from Madagascar. I love the radiateds and a lot of those like African Asiatic tortoises are, are really up my alley. I'm just kind of at a point where like, I'll definitely look into it. Don't get me wrong, but I'm kind of at the point where like the room I have is can fit what I have right now, but with very little room for much else Well, and, in, and they, until I finish my basement. Yeah. Not all of them are aquatic species. I mean, there, you know, a lot of the, okay. the, the box turtle confiscations are enormous. And I would love to keep a box turtle yeah. <laughs> again. Well, they were so fun. And, and we, uh, last, uh, you know, uh, our last episode was with Chris Leone of, um, of, uh, Garden State tortoise, and mm -hmm. man, he you know, he he really you know educated us on the horrible, sad state of a lot of these animals that have been confiscated. By the time they mm -hmm. get up to a facility, you know, like a zoo or like um, Chris and Casey's, it's they're they're so far gone they have to be euthanized. 
Um, yeah, I was going to, oh, sorry. Yeah. And so um, I've had, you know, the, the cheap way of doing that is put them in the freezer and, you know, rather mm -hmm. than having just, you know, all the expensive, you know, the, the shots, you know, from the vet to euthanize. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I've had to euthanize a few that, you know, were hit by cars that were beyond rescue. And, you know, I have a, a, a freezer up in the barn, you know, um, to, to do that. Um, but it's, um, you know, it, it's hard to do. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, being in South Dakota, we don't live by a major airport. You know, it's it's a hub of a hub kind of thing. You know? Yeah. And so and Detroit Airport is massive. There's yeah, a lot I was of stuff say, going on there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've, yeah. I've only twice back in my when i was really heavy into bird keeping which like i still am to a lesser extent but i had a few rare species that i had come in through there so i'm i'm very familiar with getting animals from dtw <laughs> yeah. i yeah. know exactly where i have to go for that so. yeah yeah it's just I, I guess that's my push you know it's I, I don't like the bad reputation that a lot of good reptile people been forced on them because of the poachers, you know, mm -hmm. um, and the traffickers. It's like, uh, you know, um, and the one thing that the, the game and fish, I mean, I, I get the notices on YouTube all the time. It's like, you want to make money um, in the reptile field, turn in poachers because you get a percentage of their entire network by helping bring down that network. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, these people are getting thousands of dollars as whistleblowers kind of thing. You know, Interesting. Um, okay. And, and uh, if more people in the rep, the bad ones in the reptile field would know that they're just not as safe anymore, that people are going to make thousands, tens of thousands of dollars turning them in, if not a, you know, this one guy made a million, you know, turning in poachers. <laughs> you know, it's because it depends on how large the network, you know, mm -hmm. is that they've helped take down. You know, it's, um, you know, the, I, I guess. You know, the more they feel unsafe, you know, the less they'll do. And, you know, like both of you have mentioned, is the more we flood the market and make, you know, what they want to sell for a $5,000 animal becomes a, you know, a $20 animal. You know, it, it's, it's a, it is a numbers game. It really is. Desperate people will do desperate things. And yeah. And, yeah. and I think part of it, too, is when we have stuff and i'm i'm just gonna throw out some current events because it it's been in the news lately but then i feel like so often we don't see that good side of the reptile hobby like um when i kind of like i've mentioned a few times i volunteer with a reptile rescue locally and i want to say they're actually the only remaining 501c3 reptile rescue in my state and every time we go to an event, we bring, you know, animals we can adopt out. We bring out outreach animals and doing the outreaches is great. But I feel like there's only so much we can do when what so many of these government entities are seeing are, you know, tegus and berms down in Florida or, you know, the stuff going on over at Slither that blew up across the reptile hobby a few weeks ago, you know. I feel like every time the hobby tries to put its best foot forward, something like that pops up or there's just something that's happened that is so hard for the community to, to move past on a government level as well. Yeah. Right. The, the other 
thing is, is like trying to convince someone whose mindset is to breed mm-hmm. and to produce into into rescue work. That's totally different. That's a totally different type of thing entirely. Mm-hmm. And then you got to talk about like, say this person already has a collection. This is where it becomes more more difficult you got to get the new person in at like hey you've got you've got a tortoise and a snake mm-hmm. and you're ready to step up this is how you should step up yeah. not 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 in the breeding aspect yeah i because definitely I think that's something oh sorry oh no go for it i, I was got gonna more say to like go. yeah i was gonna say pushing the breeding aspect i think is something that the hobby definitely needs to kind of take a back burner on like kind of like you said earlier like don't get me wrong i'm a ball python guy i i do love them i rag on the ball python industry a lot because how can i not right but but like i mean it is at the end of the day it's a pyramid scheme and how it's how it is pitched is a pyramid is a pyramid scheme but what it actually is isn't i mean Mm -hmm. there is going to be one guy at the top and he's going to have the first of this morph and he's going to own the market on it. But that's the way, I mean, it's, it would be like a very quick developing business, like tech or something like yeah. new technologies coming out, but it's a new morph is coming out and each little person wants their own little piece of it. And mm-hmm. it's just not, that's not going to happen. No. And I think, Sorry, I had to. There was a very suspicious noise. I wanted to see. <laughs> but um, but no, I think there's. I had somewhere I was going with that when I brought it up. Um. Oh God, I forgot where I would. I had somewhere I wanted to go with the um, ball python thing and tying it back. Oh, that was it. But like, something I've seen increasingly more is this push in the reptile community that. Maybe you don't need to have 20 ball pythons in a rack. Maybe you get a pair of Baron's racers, or you find something that isn't being overproduced that is something you're really passionate about. Like me with my Slowinski rat snakes. They're basically a brown corn snake found in one forest on the fringe of Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana. They are nothing to write home about. I think they're cool. They have a nifty little backstory, and I have four of them, and I'm working on making a small army and putting a new bloodline out there because they're so inbred but it's it can be hard to sell that to people though that you know because because... you're when you're breeding a species you love but it's not the in species you're gonna struggle to move it right well because because most of most of all the sales at a reptile expo are gonna be i mean the majority i would say are like first time snake owners or this is my second snake i'm just coming to get it and i own two pets and these are pet mm-hmm. people you're talking about not breeders and it, the breeders are trading with each other and buying stuff off each other too but the majority mm-hmm. of the transactions are going to be these pet people and we don't discuss pet people Mm-mm. on podcasts really and i try to be i try to be inclusive in that and remember that because that's what everybody is yeah. right yeah. at the end of the day they're your pets whether you have 200 or you have two mm-hmm. and 
I am glad that we're starting to see a switch of the people who, who do have 200 accepting the people who have two who care about them and respect them and like, you know what I mean, want to move mm-hmm. forward and be a part of the reptile community because they are. And it used to not be that way. And that was the whole ball python pyramid scheme. I can't tell you what I've got, but I've got something brewing, you know. Okay. (laughs) I was going to say being all mysterious about that. No. Yeah. (laughs) The the comment threw me off, but yeah. No, you're good. Um, Yeah, that's all I've got. They can't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It was as it was Charles um, from, uh, um, from uh, right, right. Charles, yeah. Charles said a great thing about breeding niche species is that they may not sell for ten grand, but you can probably sell them for the same amount consistently. Unlike morphs, which lose their value because the top guy is making them and pushing them out. Exactly. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, I'm a huge proponent of you know also with that like finding that niche species finding that niche project so that it's not overproduced because that's something i this was kind of something i had in mind as well is just the overproduction we're seeing in a lot of species because like i said i i do see the rescue side of things which i feel like a lot of people in our community they might take in like the odd, like me, the odd bearded dragon found in a dumpster that someone was like, I don't know, I don't want it to get thrown out, but I don't know where it goes. And I'm like, okay, I'll take it. But um, there's just so much overpopulation of so many species and it's really starting to become a massive problem with, you know, ball pythons, bearded dragons, sulcatas are huge in my area. Like you go on Craigslist and probably within 10, 20 ads, you're gonna see at least one or two sulcatas on there. Yeah. Well, that's because you can go to Taylor and buy them for 25 bucks, or at least you could 10 years ago. <laughs> I forget you're from around, you've I'm been not, in this I'm area. I, I'm not from there. I was just, yeah. I heard you talking about the Kalamazoo Expo on a, on one of the older episodes a while yeah. back, and I was like, been to that expo, it wasn't great. <laughs> no, no, Taylor's a little better. Taylor's it's tight. It's Taylor's so gnarly. Tight and packed and, uh and the importer tables where it's sulcatas for $40 each and people buy them. Yep. Right. That's where, that's where this issue is coming from. Cause there, there's a big table full of them at a reptile expo right down the street and they shouldn't be on the table at a reptile expo. I think if you're going to get a sulcata, you should be uh, contacting the breeder and either meeting them or having it shipped. Like, or meeting them at a reptile expo, not just picking it up off the table at a reptile expo because it's 40 bucks and yeah. this big, you know? I was going to say, or any rescue. I mean, the one I work with, I think they've had at least five or six of them in the last couple months. And my oh, sulcata yeah. is from there. And I mean, she's, I mean, she's very stunted. She's only about a pound at five years old, which is about a 20th of the size she should be. So, like, I have the world's tiniest sulcata. (laughs) Like, something is very wrong with her. She's quadrupled in size since I got her, and now she's a pound. She was less than half a pound at five years old. And the owner took perfect care of her. She's in perfect health. And so the shell looks 
Oh, Shell is totally normal, eats everything you put in front of her. She just never grew. Yeah, yeah. And, and I can't figure that out about, you know, like I said, you know, it's, I think some of them are really, really helped out of the egg that normally would not have hatched properly. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and like you said, they may not be showing color differentiations, but maybe they have a gene that's shut off that, uh, you know, that just, is a, a growth hormone gene or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, oh, are we going to see your cicada? Are you taking us to her? Oh, <laughs> I mean, I can get her. Sorry, I was, my dog is very adamant he goes outside again. But I mean, yeah, I can show you the tiny sulcata. She's just right over here. But <laughs> if you hear birds, I apologize. Oh, that's Heck yeah. I, my dogs are, are now facing in thunders happening and they're by my feet and demanding attention <laughs> i mean like this is the world's tiniest oh five-year-old sulcata oh my wow wow are you sure oh, see, i can keep uh, a sulcata peggy no it's like a rhino yeah i can't afford to feed it but i would end up with a four-footer that wants to dig up the barn <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I, they're one of my favorites. I mean, I grew up with them a lot around this area. You know, a lot of the shops around here that were reptile places coming in, sorry, um, have them just kind of like free roaming or like store pets, but they still sell them to people. And I, I refuse to buy one. But when the rescue told me, you know, hey, remember you said you like sulcatas, but you don't want 200 pounds? Well, this one's a little messed up, and we don't know what's wrong. The vet says it's fine, but uh, look at her. Yeah. yeah. And so, I wonder that's if she's the story of Darwin. Yeah, I've, mm -hmm. I've seen um, someone crossbreed sulcatas with leopards, and she's not one of those. Okay. But yeah. I had this whole because she's a very dark chocolate brown color. I actually, um, I think it was Anthony Pierleoni. Um, I messaged him and I said, is this a Chaco tortoise? Because she looked like a Chaco, which are basically like a Mexican tiny... Ver they look like a gopher or like a Texas tortoise, but they're a bit more spiky like a sulcata, and they're this dark chocolate brown. And he said, no, there's no one in the States really breeding those, and if they did, why would one end up in a rescue? Yeah. And I was like, I get it. This rescue has also had a Brazilian short tail boa show up, which are about a $1,500 boa so you know i'm like weirder things have happened but at the same time i get it you know yeah but she's just she's what she is well i i don't know you know like i i i watched the the pond professor ed the pond professor and great wick sock you know the pond guy and they they show these you know three foot monster or four foot mm -hmm. monster koi or whatever and so here joel and i are photographing bird life at stockade lake and custer state park and what do we see in stockade lake in one of their bays a three and a half slider no a three and a half foot oh. orange koi <laughs> it's like i think we got to report this <laughs> and it's like that's a that's a, a a koi worth quite a bit of money oh yeah, yeah. and so it's uh yeah, it. So, and then I've seen so many red ear sliders and yellow belly slider, and mm -hmm. and I'm trying to think what else. Um, what, um, but I, I I went back there. You know, I I surveyed the um, the ponds um, and lakes with um, 
finding, uh, excuse me, binoculars. And I did, where I was seeing a lot of the red air sliders being let loose in Canyon Lake right in Rapid City, I didn't see them for the last three times I've been there. Um, they must not have survived the winter or maybe mm -hmm. someone else trapped them out of there. I don't know, but um, I have not seen um, any this year. So yeah, I was going to say I, a lot of, yeah, I, I put it out there. If you let loose your red ear slider at any of our local lakes or ponds, it will be caught. It may not survive the winter or it will be caught and probably turned into, um, you know, food or something, you know, they, they will euthanize it. So, I mean, you're not doing mm -hmm. your turtle um, a favor, you know, by letting it loose. I was actually just talking to someone before um, I hopped on here about that same exact thing. Um, we were talking about the overpopulation issue across multiple species in the hobby and how in his area there's a massive feral red-eared slider population. And basically if they can't immediately find someone to take one when it comes in, it has to be euthanized because they just, they can't house them all, nor can they find places to take all of them. Yeah. And I think that's going to be something we're going to see across a lot of species probably in the next five to ten years, unfortunately, yeah. with the way, way we're producing. Yeah, because right, everyone has to be a breeder. Everyone mm -hmm. has to produce, and that's that's the issue. Well, yeah. and, and uh, I know there's um, uh, amongst our Lakota population here, they were using some native species for their ceremonial rattles, um, mm. and someone within their community had convinced their fellow tribal members to use the, um, you know, the discarded uh, redder sliders for their ceremonial rattles and, and they eat mm -hmm. the flesh and then they clean out. Uh, I don't know how they clean out the shell and preserve this, the beautiful scoots at the same time. Um, and then, and then um, sew and wrap them, you know, with leathers um, and, uh, you know, so they, 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 they keep the shell intact and then they have stones or seeds inside and then they, mm -hmm. they dress them up They're You know, they're quite an elaborate, um, ceremonial dance rattle. Um, but I, I've not seen them using our, our local rare box turtle anymore. I, I see most of them, most of them now using red ear slider, um, mm -hmm. as the basis for their, their, their turtle. Um, rattles, um, and these are for their 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 earth um, ceremonies, you know, because the mm -hmm. turtle is sacred in its uh, thirteen scoots, the thirteen moons, you know, that sort of thing. You know, mm -hmm. not not counting the marginals. So, you know, amongst you know our native population, they're they're doing their part in, you know, helping keep the invasives in in control while mm -hmm. you know, helping the native species. From what I've seen, you know out there so far uh and you know and like i said uh, um, they they might have a permit uh, i'd like to meet them because <laughs> they, they mm -hmm. might have a permit that they're using turtle traps to remove them from the waterways that i've seen them and then i've seen the invasive disappear mm -hmm. so, um, yeah so i mean there's all kinds of ways that we can you know help out and 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 regain um a better image of the reptile keepers and hobby mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I just, you know, it, it's going to take work on both sides, you know, because like you said, there are prejudices against game and fish because of how bad, you know, the mistakes that game and fish have, have done, like in that Florida case. And, mm -hmm. 
you know. <laughs> As a retic owner, that entire situation had me all fired up, but yeah, I, I couldn't watch it. Um, I oh, there oh there is a reason we haven't covered anything else going on because I'm good on covering it. There's enough people going off yep. about everything, and I I just I'm good. We can talk about like the gray area. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that entire situation. I won't go into it, but you know, knowing from all my years in shelter work and just seeing cruelty cases and just to be blunt, knowing a lot of the like mechanics behind like reptile euthanasia and how all that should be handled. Everything between slither, fish and wildlife. The last month has been, or two months have just been gnarly. Absolutely gnarly is the only way I can put it. Yeah. Yeah. A, a friend of mine got out of um, Raptor, you know, the bird Raptor rehabilitation and rescue he says you know you can only take so much and as an empathic creature he could you know he goes i i had to back away you know the losing mm -hmm. sleep and you know over surmounting sadness yeah mm -hmm. that, that's a part we didn't even touch on with the rescue side right like mm -hmm. you're getting a ton of animals that you're just gonna have to kill that's something that like is gonna take a person who can handle that because yeah. a lot of some people can't some people can just fine other people can't and that's yeah. that's totally fine yeah, yeah but i think it's gonna i think we're reaching a point in the hobby that we're we're going to see a lot more of that and i think it's going we're reaching a, a saturation point in the hobby with a lot of animals where i feel like we're going to be in a position like i said a bit ago in five to ten years kind of like we are with dogs and cats right now because like rescues just the rescue I volunteer with they have they have to use a rack for ball pythons because they get so many in that they cannot physically house them all in enclosures and they are constantly having to wait list and turn people away because they're the only rescue around I mean they've constantly got at least five or six tortoises rotating through there and it's not even like it's the it's normal stuff coming and they get weird boas they've had weird rat snakes they've had i mean they get monitors all the time and they've had to set their own limits on like what kind of large animals they can and can't house um the last time they had retics in they had them over a year and had to end up transferring them to i believe pennsylvania to find someone who was willing to take them yeah. and with just the mass production we're seeing with sulcatas ball pythons retics and just how long some of these animals live. I'm, I truly worry that we're going to reach a point in this hobby where you're going to see euthanasia for space purposes. I mean, there are facilities, I think there's one in Arizona I've seen that houses sulcatas, and that's basically all they do. And I've seen this video of their sulcata paddock, and it is just basically standing room only of unwanted adult sulcatas because they grow so fast and they're so easy to get. But what a lot of people don't realize is like a lot of the original imported sulcatas are still alive. And I've heard that repeated multiple times because they live so long and they're so hardy that we still have some of the original imported stock because they're not legal to import anymore. Good. <laughs> yeah, it's they bring in a, some kind of tick that is really, really bad when it gets to our like livestock and stuff like that. But 
Um, but yeah, I mean, at what point do we realize that retics, like I said, balls, I mean, I have a 30 year old ball Python. If you realize every one of those 38,000 ball pythons on morph market could reach 20 or 30 years old. And that's twice what we're seeing with a dog or a cat. And I can tell you the dog and cat rescue field from experience is full to bursting right now. And they're, I would say in a lot of ways, easier to rehome and take care of than a reptile is. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, every, I, we have two dogs and now one cat. We had to put a, four, well, we thought she was 14. She showed up at our house. We thought she was younger than she actually was. The vet did find a ship, uh, found her to have been 17 years old, and we mm -hmm. had to put her to rest two weeks ago. But it's, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, um, they've either showed up at our place because we're, we're at an intersection with a barn and mm -hmm. three acres and the barn can be seen right from the, the road and we've had people pull up and then they back up and go and i went oh god and i walk up there meow meow you know here's a cat that just got dropped on well now mm -hmm. you know my my allergist goes any cat that shows up you must take to the shelter because you are highly allergic to cats and they don't stay up at your barn they end up at your house <laughs> and so now we're down to one cat and and the two dogs but they're all three were rescues um you know, the, you know the, the quality of dogs you can get at shelters are, is just amazing. I mean, people have to move quickly. And, you know, this, the boy that we adopted here, we thought we were getting a lab husky cross. And one of our, I should, uh, our trainer friends, she goes, that looks like a purebred Kelpie. And she goes, just Google chocolate Kelpie. And I did. I'm like, oh, yeah, that looks like him. You know, a 49-pound mm -hmm. miniature chocolate German Shepherd is what he looks like. <laughs> Yep, I was gonna say I've worked with kelpies and coolies before. Little, little border collie type guys, real yeah. high drive. Yeah, yep. uh, yeah, high drive. I mean, he, he, I've never seen a dog that even wants to hurt insects. <laughs> <laughs> that so. would not surprise me, not one bit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he, he's making us become better trainers. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, have we been controversial enough? You know, today, tonight. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen any hate comments in the chat yet. <laughs> maybe maybe it's posted on YouTube. That's when they really fire up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having issues now. My headset died. Um, oh, geez. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Charles. We just haven't been able to get to you with Serenity uh, Dragons. And, 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 and it's like, boy, we really enjoyed his tour. Um, uh, yeah, he really has, um, he's, he's telling me how to use, um, screws that fit with washers to anchor half an inch hardware cloth to the chicken coops. Raccoons are basically mini bears with thumbs, place the screws no more than a hand width apart. And I go, you know, I'm going to do that. <laughs> so far, <laughs> I have not had, um, we've made some pretty hefty lids for our tubs. And so far we have not had the raccoons figured out so um but i'm i'm gonna add that extra oomph just to make sure for the ones i i dare leave out at night as as they're acclimating to outside before we turn them loose into the wild the rescue ones so yeah so, um so is there anything you got any other questions you have for chris pegs no i mean i, I could talk with chris all day long and uh <laughs> You know, whenever I meet people that don't have a degree in our related reptilian world, it's like, you know, I, I 
I tell them, yeah, but you probably have more experience with reptiles than those of us with degrees <laughs> because we're, we're made to understand habitat management and people mm -hmm. management. Um, maybe when our papers, you know, we're, we're made to study one species and write a paper of that species, you know, do we get to know an individual species, you know, for that two months it takes us to write that paper. We still don't get into the real nitty gritty of um, that one particular species because we simply don't have time. And so um, hobbyists, you know, tend to know a given species far more than those of us with degrees, um, simply mm -hmm. because of you would call, you know, um, home and field experience. <laughs> so, yep. you know, so don't ever berate yourself that you don't have a degree in, in that because you probably you know, know more about um, a given species and some zookeepers do that just got their degree who may have not been a reptile keeper like you, you know, so um, they, there are people, you know, the, the good scientists are the ones who um, feel no kibosh about a asking questions that, of, of that they don't know of. And I, I'm a, uh, one of those scientists who say I, I'm very, easy to say, I don't know. <laughs> I will mm. ask people who might know a lot more than I do. And that's how we learn. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. Um, real quick, can I answer the question that just yeah, popped absolutely, up? Absolutely, please. <laughs> uh, oh, the question is, Chris, do you keep copperheads or do you just like the name? <laughs> and it's oh, from God. Serenity I, Dragons on okay. Instagram or Charles. All right. So, this is to anyone I know who listens into this. I'm sorry you're finding out this way. I'm a venomous keeper. <laughs> I have one venomous. I have a single venomous. Okay. Um, I have a captive bred northern copperhead. So the name is two part. It's a joke because I'm actually a ginger. You can't see it under here. And that's how people have described me to people is you look for the scruffy ginger that won't shut up about snakes. <laughs> but so when I worked at an animal shelter multiple times, I did assist with uh, Masagas and relocating them. Um, I have worked extensively with rear fanged. Um, I keep plenty of rear fanged. I keep Barons racers, false water cobra, things like that. Um, and I have a massive, massive love for copperheads. They are the only venomous I would ever keep. Um, I was lucky enough, someone I knew locally, it is legal in my area. So prefacing, look into your laws. Um, it is legal in my city, my county, and my state. Um, I have a single northern copperhead male. He's only about a foot long. I do not touch him. He is strictly a looking-only type snake. I use a three-foot hook when I move him. I have padlocks and warning signs all over him. He is only handled by me. And only when I have to do enclosure maintenance, so I can count on two hands the amount of times because I have him in a full North American isopod dirt bioactive setup that basically self-maintains. Oh, that's um, super cool. Yeah, so he has been, um, he's an animal that I have found extremely fascinating to just sit there and watch because he is, the way he acts is very different from my other animals. Um, I do not post him on social media at all. Um, I do not post him. Um, 
the only picture you will find is if you look at my Instagram handle, he is my profile picture. Um, there was one time he was in a cleaning bin and I took him outside and put him far away and zoomed way in and took a picture of him in the grass and then put him right back in the bin and took him right back inside. Um, he's super cool. I don't recommend people keep venomous. I had worked with them and he is a very, very small. And as far as copperheads go, the Northern subspecies is the least toxic of all of the subspecies. Um, I would hazard they're one of the least toxic venomous in North America. Um, so I, I keep him solely as a me thing. I don't advertise him because I don't want people running out and getting venomous and thinking it's okay. Right. It's not something most people should do. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I've, like I said, I've worked with the whole gamut. I've kept a scrub before I've had white lips. I've had an apodora. I've had retics. The apodora was a, was not a good time. They're no, everyone says that they're smart and terrifying, but generally they won't try and kill you. Mine was a, about an 11 footer that 10 to 11 foot that definitely took a swing at my face more than a few times. Um, so she is the one, I will say that is the one snake that has handed my rear end to me and I never took a bite from her, but it was dang close plenty of times and she no longer lives here. Um, that was a very bad time, um, but I've kept a lot of stuff and, you know, with how big he's going to get, which is only about a foot and a half to two feet, he's very manageable with tools and the very limited hands-off handling that I, I do with him. Fair enough. So. Cool. Sorry, that was a ramble. I no? am very into like ethical, straight edge venomous you're... keeping. If you're going to do it, you need to be up on your stuff about it. 100%. I agree. For sure. Um, yeah. Well, I'm going to ask the wrap up questions then. Yeah, uh, sorry. No, you're good. Oh, you're you're good. good. That was, that was plenty very good. I, I like yeah, that answer greatly. I'm glad Carl's <laughs> asked. Sorry. Otherwise, I might not have asked. Um, yeah, I, I don't talk about him publicly, really. This is actually the first time I've ever told anyone outside of a very, very small group of people that he exists. Okay. So. Where are we? <laughs> um, anyway, if you could keep any one thing, you have to breed it. No, there's no limitations on what it could be. It could be extinct, not extinct, illegal, not illegal. You have enough space to keep whatever you want but you have to breed it and you have to produce it, what would it be? I have the knee-jerk reaction, and it's Apodora. I, I'm i not sure if you've ever worked with one or no. been able to get... I would love I would love to, but I'm not there yet. For those of us that... people that don't know all, all, all the genera or species name, an Apodora is what? Clarify? So, so an Apodora is... Um, People call them the Papu and Olive Python. Um, so they they used to be considered in the family Liasis, which are like the Maclot, the Water Python, the Olive Python. Um, they've now been found to be in their own species um, or their own family. So it's Apodora papuana. Um, and people just call them the Papuan Python now. Um, they are a relatively large constrictor they average between 11 to an exceptional one is generally 14 to 16 feet long um they are a snake eating python oh. um in their natural range they will um they eat from what I've carpet understood. pythons 
they will eat poplin carpets. Um, I believe there are reports of them eating scrub pythons. Basically, they kill by biting the back of the skull and crushing. Um, they are cannibals, and they do very, very commonly uh, kill each other and consume each other during mating. Um, there has not been a lot of success captive breeding them for that reason. They are brought in in very, very low numbers, and for some reason, basically only females are ever imported. Um, no one's really sure if they're just not looking in the right place for the males or what the situation is, but they are an entirely different level of snake. And I can say this having kept the scrub, the white lip, retics, berms, Kribo, water cobra. I mean, they're above everything. When I would go up to her enclosure, if I would just walk up to it, her head would come out of the hide. And you could see her eyes just flick towards you and she would come up to you. And I have never been stared down by a snake before and felt that it was truly watching and figuring out a way to take me down. <laughs> but that was the most intense reptile I have ever. I People who saw her would say the misfortune to handle her. I consider myself very fortunate more fortunate that I was not injured by her. Right. Um, because they are they are famously supposed to be docile with people. Um, she was not. She was very unpredictable. Um, every new every, home hmm. every like interaction I've heard it's it's the same as yours. Like they're thinking of a way to kill you. Yep. Like and Go for it. I've, oh, yeah. I've got a few eyes on... There's a few people that are potentially going to produce them in the near um, future. Um, for anyone who's a Game of Thrones fan, my girl was named Vagar after the dragon that killed other dragons in Game of Thrones. Um, spoiler alert. Sorry, probably shouldn't have said that. Um, but she was the most incredible reptile I have ever had, and I, I miss her dearly. But she was dangerous to a point where I live alone, and she was not a safe animal for me to have in my home alone. And she actively would try and break the glass on her enclosure to try and get out. Um, they are incredibly intelligent animals that they're they're smarter than a retic, hundred percent. Fair enough. So if that's that's my answer to that. I would love to have I would love to get some babies and raise them up and actually have them be calmer because i've heard the captive breads are much more reliable but they're incredibly hard to find yeah um so if you had any new advice or advice for anyone new coming into the hobby especially after today's discussion um <laughs> what what would your new advice be to that or that advice be to that new person wow <clears throat> My advice to any new keeper is to really follow the natural history of the species you're keeping. Look into what they do in the wild. Look up on iNaturalist. See how people are keeping them. But also, don't become so enamored by what everyone sees on social media. Because those influencers that push those big $2,000 setups, likely, number one, they got a discount on all that supply. But number two, it's okay to have that learning stage where you do keep the ball python in the dreaded 20 long while it's a baby. Because we all had those stepping stones. Right. And I think a lot of P 
people nowadays ignore the fact that a lot of us started there and did not get this plug-and-play PVC setup that is so common nowadays. So right. just be kind to yourself with your growth within the hobby and understand you can always do better and there is always a minimum you need to meet. But in between that minimum and the maximum, there's a whole lot of gray area that is totally fine to live in. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's something I think we preach. Mm -hmm. um, all right. If you could have any creature power, i.e. something an animal can do that humans can't, a spider crawling on walls, a bird flying, uh, a whale in the ocean, like any creature power, what would it be? I'm, I'm going to go for the flying on that one. It's probably the most basic answer, but I'm going for it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair one. I would probably like to fly to. Like, like I said, I'm under the reptile stuff. I occasionally per post bird stuff on my Instagram because I do keep quite a few parrots as well. And that's, I've always had this secret thing of like wanting to fly and like loving birds, but just, I'm also afraid of heights. So we're not going to do that. Fair enough. Maybe you wouldn't be afraid of heights if you could just soar off anything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, where could people find you, Chris, if they have um, any questions about what you've done or what you're up to? Or yeah, just anyone wanting to, keep? to? Oh yeah, anyone wanting to reach out to me? I'm always an open book. Um, I'm always down to talk husbandry, ethics, things like that, as long as it's civil. Um, you can always find me on Instagram at copperhead.reptilia. Um, I have a Facebook that also goes by Copperhead Reptilia, but at the same time, I like really never post on there. So um, Instagram is the best way to find me. Awesome. Cool. And Peggy, where can people find you? Here on, um, well, on, on Instagram, I am Detmers Studios, um, all run together. Uh, Detmers is my last name of Germanic descent. Um, still had a lot of relatives over there that I converse with. Um, and, um, and on Facebook in my reptile realm, I am Black Hills Turtle Forum. And I post a lot about the rescues and, and then my pet turtles. And as an artist, I am at, um, Peggy and Detmers dash artist on Facebook. Um, so you can see my bronze sculptures and some of my flat works, you know, paintings and drawings there also um so yeah uh, and where can we find herp talk radio and you matthew well for herp talk radio and me you can find us on instagram at herp talk radio you can reach out via email at herp talk radio at gmail.com we have a facebook group um hopefully there's good advice there well there is good advice there if you need to connect or reach out to anyone who's been on the show they're they're there you can find everyone pretty much i don't think we're missing anybody um at this point maybe one i don't know anyway uh yeah other than that uh peggy's gofundme oh yes there oh, is yeah. a link for that running around on her website for the turtle yes. medical the, bills 
Yes, my GoFundMe to help me uh, get the, I'm still raising the money to get all these baby turtles tested so I can release them back to their native habitat. And this is Owen, my, 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 my pound puppy. I was going to say, when he popped up, I was like, those are totally Kelpie ears. (laughs) (laughs) And and Kelpie teeth. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That brown, I've, when I've seen Kelpies, I've seen them that color before. And that is very, (laughs) yep. These are love. These are love. Well, as as per you, listener, we will talk to you guys later. Uh, You have a good night, day, evening, whenever you're listening. Yes, Chris. And, uh, and thank you, Chris, for yes, coming thank on. Thank you the guys show. for the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks it for reaching out. That's yes, awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, everyone, have a good night, day, whatever. <laughs> good night. <laughs> bye bye.